This is Nathaniel Cogley. And this is Eric Morrow. Welcome to this week's edition of Cogley and Morrow on Politics. We want to welcome all of you back after the Thanksgiving holiday and uh, really back into the the mode of talking politics, uh, even if you may have escaped that for a few days uh, during the holiday. Uh, For us, it's always an ongoing conversation, and that's why we're doing this show is because we feel like there are so many issues out there, both national, international, uh, state, and local, as you'll see today with uh, the lineup on this show, uh, that are very relevant, but also in that there are facets of those issues that uh, we feel like in our experiences and and our attention to uh, the discipline of political science, uh, to governing, uh, to studying democracy and its origins and roots and development in this country that that we need to give more attention to and that that help give our listeners uh, more to engage with these critical issues today. So we want to welcome you back. Uh, We have been tracking, uh, as you may know, that the biggest political news in the country is, of course, the impeachment process. And we've been tracking that with looking at different unique facets of that on the show, which you can find those previous episodes on SoundCloud. You can go back and listen to some of the unique things, including an op-ed that Dr. Cogley had published in the Washington Examiner, soon to be followed by another. Uh, another one tomorrow. Yes. Okay. So so we're, we're, we're looking at different things that as we analyze all of this, as we watch the, uh, the news, as we read read uh, the different views and opinions, uh, both uh, from from all different uh, directions, uh, the things that we think are, are, are critical or unique or very important to understand uh, in this process, uh, because we know it can get very intensive. We, we're, we're seeing that, and we know that people can get weary of it as well, on the one hand. <laughs> but if you, if you are weary of it, we know we're encouraging you to tune in here on KTRL 90.5 FM for Cogley and Morrow's politics, on politics take on uh, the impeachment process. Weary on the impeachment. Yes, weary. Uh, Eric, what well, are you talking about? That, we love this stuff. Yeah, that, well, we do. <laughs> but not everybody does. So uh, um, uh, that's why so many uh, I, I heard recently on uh, the, one of the satellite uh, stations I listened to out of D.C. where uh, all the bars are offering all different kinds of drinks around the impeachment theme uh, in order to help people cope with the ongoing process and the fact <laughs> that it's consuming uh, so much of the air, uh, the political uh, uh, air of the country. So we, we want to start out there today. We have a couple of other interesting issues that are very relevant to get to before the end of the show, but we do want to start out uh, with this because we've seen some movement. We started off the week very much with some movement. And I'm going to turn it over to Nathaniel to talk a little bit about that so that we can uh, dialogue among ourselves here and discuss some of those critical issues and things that we see as a part of the the development of this process. Yeah, great. So uh, just like we're saying, if people haven't had enough already, it just went into overdrive. So we were already hearing testimony out of the House Intelligence Committee. Well, this last week, they produced a 300-page report. So good reading for everyone. I certainly read as much as I could handle. (laughs) And then immediately, it's sent to the Senate, excuse me, the House Judiciary Committee, uh, which actually is empowered to write up articles of impeachment against the president. And here's the thing that I didn't quite catch before that happened. Um, There are 22 members on the Intelligence Committee. There are 41 members on the Judiciary Committee. So they did their first hearing on Wednesday with four constitutional scholars. Three were very uh, favorable to the Democrats prosecuting Trump. One was favorable to the Republicans defending Trump. But that went on for like 10 hours. And it just dragged on and on. And everyone with a day job, I mean, how can you follow this? So we just had a... a, A bunch of uh, developments happened. Hard for everyone to keep up with everything. The Intelligence Committee finishes the report. Judiciary Committee is taking over. And then this week, Speaker Pelosi came out and made an official announcement on national television that, yes, we are going to move towards articles of impeachment. Here is a small clip from that. AJ, clip one, please. Our democracy is what is at stake. The president leaves us no choice but to act because he is trying to corrupt once again the election for his own benefit. The president has engaged in abuse of power, undermining our national security and jeopardizing the integrity of our elections. His actions are in defiance of the vision of our founders 
and the oath of office that he takes to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Sadly, but with confidence and humility, with allegiance to our founders and a heart full of love for America, today I am asking our chairman to proceed with articles of impeachment. I commend our committee chairs and our members for their somber approach to actions which I wish the president had not made necessary. All right. So if we remember during the first couple of years of the Trump administration, we had a Mueller report coming out and, and a look into, you know, quote unquote, collusion with Russia and all this type of stuff. At that time, Speaker Pelosi was very patient. She said, don't use the word impeachment. We need to wait for the report to come out. And she said she would never move forward on articles of impeachment unless there was some bipartisan consensus because to actually convict and remove, you need Republican support. Uh, so she was very reluctant. Eric, all of a sudden, uh, this Ukraine fo phone call comes up. She says we're going to do an impeachment inquiry. I've always been skeptical this is going to go to the Senate. Um, but here she is. She's saying we're going to the House is going to vote on articles of impeachment. She's all in. I have a take on it. But first, I want to hear your take on it. Well, so I'm listening to this and, and it's it's ramped up. I mean, it's it's very serious. I mean, the language in which she puts it in and and harking back to the founders and right. uh, um, we're standing for America. We love America. We have to do this. Uh, Apparently, she loves James Madison. Uh, yeah, yes. Yes. But she she is. uh standing very, very firm uh, in in moving this forward. And so uh, we've come to this point, both of us, I think, at some point speculating whether it would get to this point, whether it may come to the Democrats saying, OK, wait, there's there's something here, but there's not enough to move forward with it. Uh, I, I've been questioning the motivations of it. Uh, and I think s some of it in hearing the constitutional scholars that they had in the in the committee meeting this week uh, and, and that kind of passionate appeal on the part of, of, of several of them in trying to say that this reaches that, that level. Um, I, I think that threw some fuel on the fire. I think they're, they're looking at it on the one hand, and I would just like to say this is speculation on my part. I've not read this anywhere. I like speculation. Um, okay, no well, so speculation on my part is that that they're looking over at the campaign, the 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 Democratic presidential candidates, and they're seeing that, well, if the spotlight was not on impeachment right now, it would be much more on uh, the on, on this lead up to the primary. And so a, a lot of that is getting subverted because of the coverage of the impeachment. And, and if and we've been following that and we look over that and it's, we go, wow, this is anybody's race. This is this is really a, a challenging in a number of ways. You've got outside candidates coming in now that are like, like Bloomberg right. uh, that are trying to take uh, the reins uh, at some point. Um, I, I think it, in, in one way, I don't think this is the only reason. I mean, I think politics is, is just it's just throughout all of this but to me i think that's one reason that we that the the focus is staying where it is one is that it's very clear that pelosi and many others in the democratic leadership in congress detest trump and if they can put a blot on his record uh here's an opportunity for them to do that but i think in terms of strategy if you're looking at this and spreading it out there, there has to be some consideration being given to the impact that this will have on uh, the campaign for the presidency. Yeah, um, I do think the presidential campaign has been the, the motivation for the endless inquiry, the investigations that have taken place. Um, and so I do think that was part of the calculus. They're trying to dig up information about President Trump and, and control it and frame it and present it. So that's why we see the inquiry. But again, we saw Pelosi be reluctant on an actual floor vote for articles of impeachment. And why? Why would she be reluctant? This is a... There's a lot of members from very urban districts who say, go, 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 let's impeach them. That, that works in their district. It's popular in their district. But there's 31 House members from districts Trump won. We're headed into an election where they're back on the ballot with Trump as well. And that's going to be a tough vote for them to vote to impeach the president the district voted for. So she's been reluctant because of that. Mo the moderates in her party, she needs those moderates to keep control of the, of the House. 
And also, once it goes to the Senate, they're going to lose control. They've been so obsessed with controlling who testifies and who gets subpoenas and, and what testimony goes public versus private. Um, and once it goes to the Senate, which is controlled by the Republican Party, they're going to lose control and they're going to lose the narrative and the framing. And that's not going to go well. So that's why I've always been reluctant. I think what's going on here is there is an electoral calculation. Of course, Pelosi and her speak said, this has nothing to do with politics. <laughs> and yeah, I think I both of us that. are a little, yeah, right. a little wiser than that. Um, but I think at this point, her going forward, I think she knows it's not going to necessarily go well in the Senate. But she also is up for re-election. Um, being Speaker of the House is a very complicated scenario. You need to keep the moderate members of your party happy, mm -hmm. the left members of your party happy, you need to help your party keep majority control, and you also need to be reelected. So which district does Pelosi represent? She represents the great district of San Francisco. I went to middle school and high school in San Francisco. My mom and brother still live in San Francisco. We love San Francisco on this show, but it's one of the more democratic districts in the entire country. Her district wants to impeach Trump. And she is now not far from re-election. She's coming up on a top two primary system in California. The last time she's won a re-election, she has had her versus a Republican on the final general ballot. There are currently Democrats in her district telling the voters of her district, Pelosi's the problem. Trump should be impeached. She's not impeaching him. She's the problem. Vote for me and I'll go in there and impeach him and we'll get rid of Pelosi, who's the obstacle to Trump being impeached. And as she makes her electoral calculations for her home district, she can't keep doing this. She can't keep avoiding this very popular thing in her district and being seen as the one. So for her own calculations, she's going to do it. But I also think she thinks it's going to be okay for her. The best thing the Democrats have going for them is the House. She has these 31 uh, moderate members from Trump districts. That's a tough vote for them. But she doesn't need all of them to vote for impeachment. All right. Um, they have 235 members, 31 from Trump districts. That means 204 are not from Trump districts. So that's 204 votes she can get easy. Justin Amash was a Republican. He s said he supports impeachment. He's now an independent. That's 205. 218 is the magic number to pass something. She only needs 13 of these 31 to vote yes, Eric. So if she lets those 31 make up their own mind, and it's a tough vote for them, but they can do what they think is in their own career, she only needs 13 of those 31 to have it pass the House, in which case that looks good for her that it didn't fail in the House. And then once it goes to the Senate, I agree it's not good for the party, but it's okay for her. Yeah, uh, she's going to win re-election. Those moderates can make the vote that is good for their re-election. It's not going to be good for Joe Biden and the Biden campaign if it goes to the Senate. But they're not going to be calling Pelosi as the witness. They're not going to be questioning Pelosi's involvement in any of this. They're not going to be questioning the members of the House, aside from maybe Adam Schiff. They're not going to be questioning those moderates that she needs to keep control. I think she thinks she can move forward. She can win re-election. The Democrats can keep control of the House. And yeah, there's going to be some problems here, but it's better than the alternative of backing down now. Right. Well, and that, that scenario, as you as you lay it out, uh, would would work either way. I mean, one, if, if Trump wins re-election, they would certainly want to keep control the House. The, yeah. the Democratic strategy yeah. would be, okay, we can continue to do what we've done the last four years uh, uh, in, in keeping control, or the last two years in, in controlling the House and ensuring that uh, whatever Trump policies that they oppose do not get through. Uh, another thing that I see with that is the balance uh, with the possibility of winning the White House. And so if she's thinking in this way and looking at keeping her seat, her position becomes much more powerful if the White House is won by a Democrat in the in the fall, uh, even if the Senate is still controlled by Republicans, uh, it, we have a split Congress. It's still more difficult, but but it it, it shifts a little bit in terms of, of power, uh, both certainly in the executive and how the executive is carried out in relation to oversight by Congress and by the House, uh, and and so that that's where why you know I, I think 
the timing on this could be to their ben- to the Democrats' benefit if, like you're saying, okay, now the camera moves away from Pelosi and from Democrats in the House and is primarily focused on the Senate and, and the resolution of this. Because also, as we've seen with these issues in the past, once the Senate is done with its work and the, and the focus shifts, we're going to be right in the middle of, a, of the primaries and all attention is going to move past this very quickly. I, I don't see, as, a, as we've seen with many other issues, even though it's historic uh, in, in terms of, uh, uh, of having an impeachment process, uh, it, the, the, the shift, that shift is going to happen. Uh, who knows what impact it'll have? There, there are all kinds of things I've seen out there that say, well, it's, gonna, it's negative for the Democrats. It's negative for the Republicans. It's negative for both. But I think in the scenario that you're, you're laying out, at least the strategy that you're laying out, is that, that the timing of that could be very beneficial uh, to Democrats uh, to, to get that light off of them related to the impeachment and then immediately following that back onto the primary process. Yeah, so on the House side, you know, the um, we're still approaching primaries. So everyone has to worry about their, their party and how they're viewed within their party. And so the left-wing members of the Democratic Party want to say they voted to impeach Trump. Uh, the moderates... Um, would like to, they're then the difficult one because they want to tell their party, yes, that's popular, but they don't want to go to the general having impeached President Trump when President Trump wins the district. So that's the tougher one. And they're going to have to make a calculation whether or not there's a threat to them in the primary or not. But I do think this point about the election cycle coming up is part of why we need to move now. Pelosi's on the ballot. They're all on the ballot. And there's one thing about which party is going to control, but also these are incumbents. They're all up for reelection in the House. A third of them are up for reelection in the Senate. They don't want to be stuck in D.C. doing this. They got to get back and, and get to campaigning. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I do think they don't want to drag this on too long. I do think even if it goes to the Senate, we're looking at a, f- a few weeks here and they're not going to drag it out. As l- There's been some people in the media say, well, the Republicans will just drag this on forever to tie up the Democratic candidates for president. They don't want to be, st- no, none of them no, want to be stuck no, in DC. They all, a third of them have to get back in campaign as well. Right. Um, so they, they'll, they'll do, they'll take control. Mm-hmm. They'll restrain the narrative. They'll have the Trump team defend itself, wrap it up and get back to campaigning. Right, right. Yeah. The par- part of this is understanding too, what goes into campaigning and the amount of money that has to be raised. I mean, and they're losing a lot of that time. I mean, a, a, a member of Congress, House or Senate, their work week is kind of built around that as to their level of engagement, both whether in D.C. or back in their home state or district uh, in terms of ongoing fundraising. And so th- this does cut into that significantly if you're especially if you're an incumbent and you're in a district that may you may have a, su- a, a substantial challenger. Uh, so, yes, you're you're right on there in that 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 focus on the campaign and then the 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 expediting this within the Senate. I mean, we already know and it's already out there in the media that, uh, you know, Trump and Republican leaders are strategizing on to what this process will be. Uh, we also know, too, and th- this is one where, uh, you know, I kind of questioned the, uh, the the moving forward the, with this with such confidence on the part of Pelosi, where she has been hesitant in the past. And I think maybe, you know, you've hit that as to what the, the motivation would be, because once it is in the Senate, uh, the, the, while there are some procedural rules that are in place that that start that process, after that, it's a majority vote of the senators to determine the process and what evidence will be presented and, and w- or whether it will or not and by whom. I mean, it's so it's very much in the control of the Republicans who uh, uh, my assumption is based on the on the things I've looked at is they're going to have this scripted out. Uh, step by step and and the length of it, um, what process will follow, what process, because they will control that vote all the way through until it's uh, completed. I, th- I don't think the trial is going to play well. And also, I don't think all Democrats are going to vote for this. Joe Manchin in West Virginia, he ain't going to vote for this. Jones in Alabama, he ain't going to vote for this. So, I mean, even the vote's not going to look good. But again, it's we still might have Speaker Pelosi running the House. And so I think she's calculated that she can send it, she can have the vote, send it to the Senate, still control the House. And if, if some, peop- some people don't, are in a tough position, it's, it's not her. <laughs> right, right. Well, and I, I think in, in, in kind of turning to that process in the Senate, I just want to point out a few things because I heard some uh, major uh, uh, 
uh, pundits that in uh, in uh, host of of political shows on major news networks today and, and and I was listening and 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 then the way they were talking about even like uh one saying well I think Trump will testify and and I'm like I'm sitting there like they they don't they don't understand the rules behind this and how much this is not it's not a trial I mean it's it's it is a trial but then it's not in the sense that that even though the chief justice is there he's not presiding over a trial he's not making decisions moment by moment those are process decisions that are made by a majority vote uh, in a in a body that's led. Uh, by Republicans. And so uh, I, I, I'm, I'm saying this because I was like, well, if people are out there listening to this, no matter which side of this you're on, uh, there's a lot of confusion about what actually happens once this goes to the Senate. And I think that's where uh, we're going to see uh, that the attempt, I think, by both sides on public opinion, they use that to their advantage. Ignorance is often used in politics <laughs> to gain an advantage because you can throw things out there. You can um, you can play on that if you're politically savvy enough in order to manipulate it to get the outcome you want. It sounds very devious and crafty, but that I mean, this is the nature of politics. It's to get the outcome you want through whatever process and means within you know within boundaries. Uh, but but sometimes that is manipulation of public opinion. So I wonder, you know, about your thoughts on that as this moves to the Senate and kind of looking at the strategies of either side of how to, uh, how this will play for them. Well, right. We've seen on the House side, controlled by the Democrats, how they have used the rules to control the process. Um, the Senate's controlled by the Republican Party. They have 53 and, and Senate Majority Leader is Mitch McConnell, and he's very experienced here. It is a trial. It's definitely a trial. It's just not in the judicial branch. The judicial branch rules don't apply. The judicial branch standards give people some expectations of what might be fair, but ultimately the Constitution is very clear that the Senate is, gets to decide this process. And we've only had this happen twice before. Nixon resigned before it got to this point. Um, Andrew Johnson and Bill Clinton had trials in the Senate. And so Mitch McConnell, and he's going to have to think, you know, do I have uh, 51 support for these rules? But he's going to put together a group that is comfortable with the rules, um, that is going to empower the Trump team to defend itself and, uh, you know, have the sense of some sort of fair trial that's going to be wrapped up in not too long of a time. But, yeah, it's going to be very different going into the Senate once that happens, if it happens, and, and I'm assuming she can get 13 of those 31, that this will have the 218 threshold. Yes. Um, but yeah, we'll be uh, excited when that takes place. There'll be uh, lots of good shows yeah, on it, that. She, she would have to anticipate that the numbers will be there in, in, in terms of their caucusing and what they, what they pulled together, because that would be a huge embarrassment. If it, if it was voted down in the House. She's got all their phone numbers. I'm sure right, she's right, called yes, them up. Yes, yeah. yeah. Well, but but remember, too, now, if they're also looking at if the cards, you know, if everything comes in uh, and, and things fall, right, uh, uh, reelected, reelected as speaker, the possibility of a Democrat in the White House. I mean, that that is significant for the control that the speaker can have in the House uh, in terms of chairmanships and, and so on. So I, I think there's there's leverage there to get the votes that she needs that. Yeah, I just don't think going to Senate is helping the presidential campaign. This is where Trump is going to uh, be able to present his side and he's going to make the last few months not look as good as um, they were presented. Yeah, well, and that's where that's where I think that it, it, it could be helping because there is such disarray. Uh, seeing Harris now drop out, Bullock out, you know, others will, will probably follow in the weeks to come, is that, that, that it's keeping the focus off of that lack of a superlative candidate mm-hmm. that, that the people are drawn to at this point. And, and so the timing here, to me, may have some benefit to them, not only because it shifts into the, the return to the focus on the primary, but at, at that point, it may be very clear who... Who is a as a front front runner going into Iowa, but then also to see what the impact of say the Bloomberg run uh, has on the campaign. Yeah, I think this will pass because we're still in primary stage. So these 31 members who are from Trump districts, they still need to win the nomination of their party first. So they may be a little more inclined to say, yeah, impeach him. If we were already in the general, they'd all. Not all, but, you know, I would think that would try to get them more to uh, trying to attract independents and moderates. Uh, So we'll keep watching this and we'll be back with more Cogley and Morrow politics right after the break. 
When it comes to parenting, there are no perfect answers. But that's okay, because you don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Teens in foster care will love you just the same. For more information on adoption, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. If you're looking for a way to truly help children in need, become a CASA volunteer. CASA stands for Court Appointed Special Advocate. It means that you'll represent the best interest of a child in need in court. You'll work with attorneys and social workers to make sure that child is safe in the foster care system. You won't be a foster parent, but you will be a voice making a real difference at a critical turning point in his or her life. Because every child deserves a chance, and that chance is you. Volunteer today at becomeacasa.org. Sponsored by Texas CASA. The Erath County Mobile Food Pantry is helping to feed the Stephenville community. The food pantry is open on the third Thursday of every month from 5 to 7 p.m., except for holidays. The food pantry is located at Stephenville First Baptist Church parking lot at the intersection of Green and Columbia Street. You must bring your own shopping bags, and you must qualify to use the pantry. For more information or to see if you qualify, visit tafb.org. Okay, man, time to be an all-star caregiver. Drive them to physical therapy, doctor's appointments. Be there emotionally and physically. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. Caregiving is tougher than tough. Find care guides at aarp.org caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. All right, welcome back to Cogley and Morrow on politics. Uh, you gave us a nice lead there, Eric, into the presidential race, and we did see some significant developments this week. Senator Kamala Harris has dropped out. Now, I was one that thought she might plausibly be the nominee. Um, she has attorney general experience out of California. There were a lot of um, established campaign operatives working for her. But she is out and she made an announcement and we have a clip from that. AJ, clip two. So here's the deal, guys. Um, my campaign for president simply does not have the financial resources to continue and the financial resources we need to continue. I'm not a billionaire, I can't fund my own campaign, and as the campaign has gone on, it has become harder and harder to raise the money we need to compete. In good faith, I cannot tell you, my supporters and volunteers, that I have a path forward if I don't believe I do. So, to you, my supporters, my dear supporters, it is with deep regret, but also with deep gratitude, that I am suspending our campaign today. All right. She's still got a day job. She's still a senator from California. But Eric, you first. What do you think here? Well, I think it's a reflection of the challenges that Democrats have had with her uh, all along the way uh, in that she's never really separated herself out. Uh, from her peers in in running uh, in the primary uh, with with distinct uh, policy uh, positions or initiatives. I mean, she what what she said has resonated with what other candidates are saying, but but it, it's not given her that traction and, and kind of pushed her out in front or, or at least in terms of visibility where people would say, OK, I want to look more at depth uh, in depth at her candidacy. Uh, and so I think that that's one issue. I think a secondary issue is that she did her uh, attack when she went on the attack on Biden, that didn't play well. And that, that hurt her uh, in the primary process uh, in terms of the debates and the, and the kind of opinions of her, uh, because then she did stand out, but she stood out in a negative way, not in a strong policy position on something that, that attracted people's attention. Uh, so I, I think those are, I think she, uh, some of the things that, that, that I've read and I would tend to agree with is that she's she's been trying to find herself and her message in all of this. And she just was not able to do it in a way that attracted the attention she needed. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't I don't think it's about the money. I, 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 the money would have been there if the support would have been there. But the support seems to be waning. Good. So we dis we agree too much on this show. So we have a nice yeah. moment of disagreement here. I think when she went after Biden, that was probably the best moment of her campaign. That's when she jumped from 5% to 15%. The problem is she's a prosecutor. She's good at prosecuting. She's good at, at going after Trump and Biden and all this stuff. The problem is she apparently has no defense skills. So in the July debate, Tulsi Gabbard went after her record as attorney general. She gave one of the worst non-answers possible. This is when she starts to drop. 
even after the show when she's on CNN, hey, Gabbard, you know, criticize your record. What, what do you have to say about it? She said, well, I'm top tier. Gabbard's not top tier. Like She had no good defense. And I thought that uh, it was actually good when she was prosecuting. She mm -hmm. could not defend her record as attorney general in California. She should have expected those questions. Right, right. Well, and that, that uh, I, I think that's a, a, a good look at an understanding uh, the lack of appeal that she had, or, or maybe beginning to lose that appeal, uh, I still t tend to lean, lean on the policy side. I, I just, uh, in looking across the field, and there's a couple of other ones in the field too that I think uh, uh, have some challenges with this. I think I think Castro has some challenges. I think Booker uh, has challenges. Even Mayor Pete, uh, I think there's some challenges there. Um, now, when you look at that in a strategy of going up against Donald Trump, uh, being uh, diving deep on policy is not necessarily going to win the day, uh, but you do have to have things that attract the attention of potential supporters. And I think she she just really struggled with that. She she never could uh, uh, launch out into an area that distinguished her uh, from her colleagues there. Well, I do agree in that aspect. She had some policy inconsistencies, the Medicare for all she was in, and then she was had a different plan. And, and also, I think she never got away from appealing to the politics of her home state. You know, she's from California, very democratic state. Uh, identity politics plays real well. And I thought in a run for president, she's going to be the unifier. She was in a, a great position to be a unifier. And I'm not sure she was able to get ever get that messaging right. But here's the real thing. She's, she talks money in that announcement. She says, I don't have the money. Okay. The plan was survive Iowa and New Hampshire, mm -hmm. do well in South Carolina, use that to go to California on Super Tuesday and also do well. And now we got a real thing going. She had f over $40 million, Eric. And here she is driving, dropping out of the race Months before Iowa, the plan was do well in South Carolina and California. This is bad management of very good campaign funds, $40 million, that she would have this big chest, have a plan, and end up dropping out months before those states even come around. I think what got to her a little bit is this push too early to be quote unquote top tier, just like she was on CNN saying, you know, I'm top tier. Gabbard's not top tier. You know, uh, that was too attractive to her. And and Scott Walker had this problem in the Republican mm -hmm, cycle right, a while yeah. ago. Some people yeah. thought governor's Wisconsin, he might be president. He dropped out before Iowa because he overspent. He had good yep. money and he overspent. And here she was. She wanted to be top tier. She wanted to be top in the polls. And she spent her money big, big teams, big ads, spent it big. And she was no longer able to sustain. And if she had been a little more uh, reserved with her funds, patient in terms of poll numbers and her positioning, and just actually executed the strategy on the states that she'd do well in, I think it could have been a better campaign. Right. I think that this is important, something to point out for listeners that contrast something like this, where you have someone that's making their first run at the presidency and uh, uh, looking at Donald Trump. Okay. So the, 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 Knowledge, the industry knowledge that would have been before this would have said, okay, no one can win uh, without this extensive network of of people, uh, of of you know, a clear strategy to win, um, the resources to do it. I mean, resources are still critical, but but Trump won based on his appeal to. Uh, certain groups and populations uh, without putting the energy and the effort into an extensive campaign network as we had seen in in previous uh, uh, races uh, what 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 this shows is that the the challenges of management of this especially getting into this and thinking that that especially if you're running and you're running on your personality you're running on your that the appeal of that but then also needing the key people that are there structurally to to make this work and and sometimes that can be neglected too much and i think this is an example uh, walker's campaign was definitely yeah, the example of that similar. where where he was running on his his, his a record personality uh, the, the, that he had been getting attention, but he, he set himself up to fail because 
he didn't give enough attention to the structure of structuring a campaign uh, that that's required of people. Again, I make the distinction here because Trump didn't do it, but he didn't need to. Whereas uh, someone like a Kamala Harris that needs more national recognition and needs to build the base uh, of her support toward. Uh, a Super Tuesday toward winning primaries, uh, that's very critical. Well, I just think sometimes that national recognition is a little too attractive. This is state by state. Mm -hmm. And you'll get national recognition if you start winning states. Yeah. You know, and this kind of attraction to I need to be in the top of the national polls months before the first state happens, I think is a fallacy. That's very expensive to try to get top in national polls. Um, Instead, you want to target your states, win your states, start to amass delegates. And the news media will say, oh, Kamala Harris won South Carolina tonight. What a big change. What a big development, you know? And I think if she had been patient, um, you know, this could have been 40 million is good. And that that puts her near the top five or six campaigns. And we got people with less money still in and and doing all right. There was another moment in the uh, Democratic primary this week that uh, we weren't going to do, but this thing went viral. It was been on ABC, CBS, NBC. It's been on The View talk show. It's been all over the place. Uh, Biden had a town hall moment in Iowa that um, didn't go so well. So this um, audience member first says, you know, he doesn't like what Trump's up to in Ukraine. This this audience member clearly isn't a Trump fan either. And he's saying, well, Trump's no good in Ukraine. But you, too, Joe Biden, have, have some issues with Ukraine. AJ, if we can play clip three. But you, on the other hand... That's your son over there. Get a job and work for a gas company, but you had no experience with gas or nothing. In order to get access to the public, to the president. So you're you're selling access to the president just like he does. So you got a damn liar, man. That's not true. And no one has ever said that. No one has heard that. No. You see it on the TV. No, I know you do. And by the way, that's why I, I'm not sedentary. I don't. I get up and and, and no, let, 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 let him go. Let him go. Look, the reason I'm running is because I've been around a long time and I know more than most people know. And I can get things done. That's why I'm running. And you want to check my shape on? Let's do push-ups together here, man. Let's do, let's run. Let's do whatever you want to do. Let's take my No one has said my son has done anything wrong and I did not on any occasion. And no one has ever said it. But look, fat, look, here's the deal. Here's the deal. It looks, it looks like you, you don't have any more back home. Any other questions? Well, I knew you weren't, man. You think I thought you'd stand up and vote for me? You're too old to vote for me. <laughs> All right, so I did edit that. It's a much longer clip, and I left the, the pause so you could hear where I cut the edits out. But um, some supporter of another Democratic candidate, you know, asked him about this Ukraine thing. And what we got there, Eric, was no one's ever said that. I'm not sedentary like you. Um, I'm in better shape than you. Let's do a push-up contest. Let's do an IQ test. Look fat. I think he's going to go fat, so I didn't say it. Uh, and then he said, you're too old to vote for me. Wow, is this guy trying to win or not? I'm I'm confused. Well, so uh, this uh, takes me back to the 2016 campaign uh, with uh, some of the messaging and the things that we heard Trump saying about it and and has all along in his presidency. But on on the one hand, I'm trying to decide whether Biden's getting prepped to debate Trump and to get down and dirty with him and knowing that that a lot of stuff's going to be thrown his way uh, or if he is uh, this has gotten under his skin, you know, and he he's. He's reacting to it in a way uh, that's defensive uh, in, in, in trying to maintain that position of saying, well, I was the front runner to begin with. Why, why am I having to really go through all of this uh, in order to maintain that position? Uh, it, it's a little bit of, of a concern because I think on the one hand, uh, is that going to be a turnoff? For a lot of people just to, to do that or uh does that appeal to people to say okay we, we need somebody out front that's going to to get into it with trump and 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 go after him just as he's going to go after the democratic candidate 
Yeah, it'd be nice if someone could effectively go after. I just think this was effective yeah. at all. And I know there's yeah. probably some Joe Biden supporters listening to the show, and that's fine. He's a two-term vice president. Um, but again, the Democrats only need one nominee, not multiple. So, And they're going to have a nominee, and I just never thought it'd be him for stuff like this. Yes, yes. Well, he, uh, and part of this is showing a side of him that I'm not sure many people have engaged with before. His, his challenge before was getting his candidacy off the ground uh, when there was a, a, a wider field. There were, you know, certainly other options. Uh, Clinton was a, at that time, even though she didn't win with Obama winning, that she was a stronger candidate. Uh, there, I think we're seeing a side of him um, that, will be interesting to track as we move forward with this. Do we see more of this than we do uh, his engagement with with policy issues? I'm not sure that he expected he would be in this kind of position. That it, that that I think the the stress of that may be a factor as well. That did he go into this primary thinking that I'm I'm going to have to roll up my sleeves and 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 do what I've done always claimed I've done before being the uh, the person from Scranton that you know made his way uh, that I'm going to have to do this again. He um, did not become vice president through effective presidential campaigning. He's run before twice. It never went well. Um, Obama could have picked a lot of people to be his vice president. And I certainly think this time around, he's got that two-term vice president resume now. And um, I just uh, think it's just not enough. He's still Joe Biden at the end of the day. And, and boy, he knows politics better than me. The guy's a long-term senator, vice president. You know, kudos for that stuff. That's quite some accomplishment. But no, he's never been an effective campaigner for president. We've never seen that before. Right. right. And, and, and it'll be interesting in the weeks ahead to see, uh, especially because he is trailing, uh, in, in Iowa and New Hampshire as we get into that first round as to what his strategy will be. And, and I'm not sure that this is an effective part of a strategy. No. Uh, if, yeah. uh, he still leads in national polls where the people aren't paying attention. In Iowa and New Hampshire where they're actually coming around doing town halls, seeing them face to face, Buttigieg is ahead of both of them. And so I think this is going to be a pattern. I don't know how many states Biden is going to effectively win. Well, we want to turn now to an uh, international issue. We haven't had uh, as many of these as we as we will certainly have in the future, wanting to, to, to dig into topics that we think are very critical. And, and one this week that came to light uh, or something that we, we wanted to give attention to because of the uh, it being the 70th, 70th anniversary uh, of, of NATO, the North Atlantic uh, Treaty Organization. Uh, but also uh, there was a lot of media attention given to it, uh, much more so to, to Trump and some of the antics around some of the leaders and their reactions to him and with him and so on, uh, but not as much uh, to really what NATO uh, is doing, what are some of the challenges uh, facing NATO, what has been its significance in the past. And so we wanted to give a little bit of attention to this today, one, to help our listeners put this in a broader context. Uh, part of it is giving a little background uh, to NATO and understanding what this organization has done. You know, post-World War II, when when there was really a, 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 a challenge in Europe. I mean, the challenge, the focus was on rebuilding. Uh, the focus was on how to protect Europe going forward and the need to create alliances uh, that would uh, uh, ensure that if, as as NATO says in its mission, if one is attacked, it's an attack on all of us, that 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 the United States, together with its European allies, would come together uh, and be be prepared to, not, not as it was with World War II, where it was this kind of ramping up of the war machine over time, but they would be able to respond, and they would be prepared to respond to, to any threats. Uh, that, that begins to change uh, with the um, uh, end of the Soviet era uh, and the... Um, uh, breakup of the Soviet bloc, uh, where then there becomes questions about does NATO expand, uh, which does happen under Bill Clinton. We see that expansion where now former uh, Soviet bloc countries enter into NATO, which sets up a different dynamic. And and some of the, the repercussions of that uh, are some of what we're seeing today. Uh, the other thing that we've seen in the news recently or, or in the, during the Trump administration has been uh, the call for the members of NATO to kind of carry their weight. So the the idea that or the agreement that they would fund NATO with two percent of their uh, gross domestic product that uh, 
on what has happened is the United States carries about 70% of the financial burden of NATO, uh, and you have a handful of countries that uh, pay their 2%. Uh, others that have now, because of Trump, have committed to doing more so that the that they, the estimate now is that probably about half will be up to that point by mm-hmm. uh, within the next five years. Uh, but but there are some very strategic issues and challenges. And so I thought we would bring this, give this some attention today just to give some pe- give people a little bit of background and kind of understanding is why, why NATO is critical, why um, uh, this alliance continues, and and what are really uh, challenging issues that we need to be aware of that have a, a definite effect on national interest around the globe? Yeah, sure. NATO is a big deal, and we cover this in uh, international politics type class. Um, Trump ran on this idea of um, the many mem- NATO members are not reaching that 2% threshold like you highlighted. And I would say it looks like he's had a lot of success in terms of trying to pressure some countries to increase to 2%. But also the framework of the the reading that you brought in to prepare for this one was looking at NATO in terms of its phases throughout history and how it's gone through three big phases thus far. And I think although the, the person who wrote this clearly doesn't like President Trump that much, he used some words that I think Trump would disagree with, I think President Trump would agree with this idea of phases. President Trump's not caught up in, in World War II or Cold War. He's always re-questioning things. Hey, wh- why do we have that deal? We can get a better deal. Um, and he has already said, well, you know, in the campaign, he was saying, well, you know, maybe, maybe it's time to rethink NATO and what NATO is doing. One thing that this article highlights is that the difference between Gorbachev, Yeltsin into Putin and how Putin has been a little more interested in reasserting influence in former Soviet bloc countries and especially, Eric, I think, where there's Russian ethnic people. He's very interested in that. And we see uh, Russia took over Crimea and is now part of Russia. Um, And so... Is it that we're headed to a new phase, or does NATO need to play its old role of, of balancing out what was the Soviet Union, which is now a, a reemerging Russia? Right, and I, and I think that that's that's the one of the primary issues because it it, it in this development in within the last several decades, where you see you know Poland, uh, the Czech Republic, uh, you see others coming into NATO, that even the possibility of looking at uh, uh, Finland. Uh, Sweden and others who have not uh, been uh, um, have not had membership in the past uh, that that that's perceived by Russia uh, in 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 some ways as the advancement of this alliance. Uh, on the other hand, with Putin and with his his focus and his move into Crimea, uh, um, uh, the into Georgia as well, uh, these are are ways of trying to set a line there, seeing this this kind of eastern advance uh, of of NATO, and so. What, what's really kind of led to this have been some of the challenges in the part of the world that I think is even more critical. I, I think, yes, those areas, the Ural Mountains, there's some of those areas in there that have been, um, uh, that have always been, uh, not, not the Urals, the Carpatho-Russian Mountain, but there's always been some areas that are been disputed and will continue to be because such of the blending of cultures. But I'm, I'm much more concerned as you move down uh, the breakup of Yugoslavia, uh, we look. We move into the Mediterranean and uh, uh, the Black Sea, uh, and in other areas, this relationship between Turkey and Greece, who were original partners in NATO, but then the the, the challenges with Turkey itself and its kind of alignment with Russia, uh, and what that sets up, because through NATO has been it's been one of the key ways of keeping uh, the Greeks and the Turks at least collaborating on, on a certain level, and so. Uh, I'm, while everybody's for me, while everybody's looking up at Eastern Europe and seeing the dynamics there, uh, I think the impact of this long term is going to be much further to the south. It's going to be um, Central Eastern Europe uh, into the Balkans, which have always been very challenging mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. areas. But also, I'm I'm carefully watching this alignment and the relationship of Greece and Turkey within NATO. And that's an area of the world I know you you're very familiar with, given some of your expertise uh, in the cultures over there. And- and things of that sort. Uh, NATO is one of those things where that old saying, less is more, might be applicable. 
Um, this is an, a compact to defend each other. A war on one is a war on all. And this is seeking to stop Soviet advancement into Eastern Europe. And I'll do this in an international politics class. How many of you American students would support a military draft to go fight Russia to defend the UK? A lot of hands go up for the UK. How many would do it for France? A lot, but less. How many of you would support a draft in the USA to fight Russia with 10,000 nukes and a, a pretty good army to go defend Latvia? Not many hands go up, mm -hmm. right? right? And as we look at the map, you can see there's an interesting part of Russia that um, not, might not be on everyone's radar. There's a place called um, Kaliningrad Oblast. And it's this piece of Russia enclave separated from Russia um, and in between that is Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. And I'm just thinking, I mean, we, it's questionable whether or not we should be adding to the NATO alliance countries that directly border Russia with r people who are ethnically Russian <laughs> and uh, speak Russian and part of the former Soviet Union. I mean, obviously, Russia is interested in those. They could have their own regional issues. Um, and do we really, are we really ready to go to war with Russia over a, a border dispute with Latvia? I mean, I just don't know. It's, it's questionable if, if, if uh, more is good when it comes to NATO. Well, it's setting up that geographic division. Then it's very clear there's a line here. These countries are in NATO. These are not. And, and, and it's playing on that old alliance and the reasons for it, uh, especially given, uh, Russian aggression in these other areas and, and looking at the, whatever reasons they had for, you know, Georgia, Crimea and so on. And, and, and then the ongoing issues in the Ukraine is that uh, uh, that it, those feed into that and, and it's us and them. And we know in our studies and the way we look at all of this, that it's much more complex than that. Uh, and that where these countries, too, and we look back in, 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 in history and we see they've always been the ones that have gotten run over when it's us and them. And so now we're being trying to be more inclusive, but that doesn't leave out the fact that if this ever went into conflict, those countries would be run over. I mean, there's a, <laughs> yeah. it, 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 and so it's, it's, it's very challenging in that way. And, and I, uh, I, I commend the president on one hand here in, in, in raising the questions about NATO, NATO's place yeah. and its effectiveness in the contemporary world. I'm not sure that we're helping our alliances, the alliance itself, with the countries that we've had as long-term allies in the way that he's doing it. That's a point of critique that I have, not in asking the questions. I think the questions are good. The questions about funding and support are good. It's how do you go about doing this and having a constructive conversation uh, rather than, than pushing people away. Let's, let's talk about what we need to do with this going forward. And he can be very critical. He can be very vocal, especially with like Germany. He's called out Angela Merkel. Um, and this is something he's so passionate about. He's been talking about this for 30 years. It's not a, a come lately thing for him. Well, we want to thank you for joining us today on Cogley and Morrow on politics. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook. We'll be posting some of the articles that we used in today's uh, 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 show. We'll also, you can catch us on SoundCloud if you don't hear the episode, which is aired Sundays at noon on 90.5 FM KTRL. And we also want to direct you to wherever you get your podcast, uh, because our shows are available there as well, so that you can download them and have them with you. Thank you again for joining us today. We'll look forward to having you with us on next week's episode of Cogley and Morrow on Politics.